Hello and welcome to Dialogues on FuturePrimitive.org. My name is Mike Hagan. Pleased to be back with you again for another wonderful program. I'll do a quick introduction for the upcoming show and try to do justice to my traveling cohort, Joanna Harcourt-Smith. We've got a couple wonderful interviews all ready to roll for you here. So let me quick tell you a little bit about what the program is going to be about this month. My partner and co-host, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, interviewed Dr. Roger Payne and his wife and research partner and performance partner, the wonderful Lisa Harrow. And she spoke with them about the oceans, ecology, and whales. We'll follow that interview up with a conversation between myself and my good friends, Dr. Michael Heisen, and his research partner, the wonderful Star Newland. We also spoke about ecology, dolphins and whales, the oceans, and human babies. So stick around for some interesting and informative internet radio, and come on back every month to Dialogues on futureprimitive.org. Hello, everybody. This is futureprimitive.org with Joanna Harcourt-Smith. You are listening to Dialogues, and today it's really wonderful for me. I have on the line Lisa Harrow and Roger Payne. Lisa Harrow is a New Zealander who is an actor and a writer who went to England on a, a scholarship and um, by the New Zealand government and um, worked in the Royal Shakespeare Company, has played leading roles all over the world, on stage, on film, and on television. And also, she has recently written a book called What Can I Do?, published by Chelsea Green Publishing. Our other guest, Roger Payne, is the president and founder of the Ocean Alliance, a non-profit organization dedicated to the conservation of whales through research and public education. And he has studied the behavior of whales since 1967 and has recorded... Tell us, Roger, how many whales have you recorded? Oh, a great deal. <laughs> That's all. I don't know the number, but I've worked with every one of the large whale species around the world. Could you could you say to us that um, you uh, count whales amongst your friends? Well, I certainly feel friendly towards whales. I, I hope they feel friendly towards me. Yes, yes. So, um, Lisa, um, tell us a little bit about uh, your book, What Can I Do?, my book, What Can I Do?, uh, was written uh, in conjunction with a program that Roger and I do called Sea Change, Reversing the Tide, which is um, a program designed to both educate and inspire audiences to start taking seriously the issues that the Earth faces um, as the impact of human beings upon the Earth increase uh, daily and uh, as we started doing the show I realized that the question what can I do was the perennial question of um, audiences after we'd done it and um, so I decided the only thing to do was to provide an answer for that so rather than having lots and lots and lots and lots of things to talk about I because there's just so much that people can do I wrote a book and the book is simply um, 
a, a group of websites that people can go to to find information about what the problems are and the solutions that they can bring into their lives to help solve the problems. And the, the, the websites are extensive. They're under, they're under an alphabetical listing, alphabetical listing of headings. And it's a tool, really. It's, um, there's lots of books out there about telling us what to do. But for me, the important thing was for people to realize that the Internet is a fantastic resource for when it comes to finding out information and excellent, accurate information. All the sites in the book um, were vetted by Roger, who's scientific and accurate, and his, his, his need to, to absolutely say this is accurate information is absolute. So he, he looked through all the sites and said, yes, 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 that's right. So people can use it with great knowledge that it is a trustworthy um, tool that they can find out all the things that 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 they can do to help solve these enormous problems that we face. But they are all solvable, and uh, that's what the book's about. Roger, um, could you comment on what Lisa just said, that the problems that we face are solvable? This, this really fascinates me because I feel we're at a delicate moment here. Well, the thing that, uh, to me, the most important part about the experience of being involved with the Lisa's book, just to the extent of trying to look at different websites and so on, is when we started, I must frankly admit that although I have spent my last 35 years trying to keep up, a, keep my chin up and, and be positive, I had actually thought, no, it really is hopeless. It's just the problems are so serious that we can't handle them. And then I began seeing all these things she was finding and going through them one after another. And I realized, my gosh, it's amazing how many people are out there and how many things there are that people can do and change to change the world. That it's what our main problem is that we have just allowed ourselves as a species to slip into doing everything this based on one uh, measure, which is whether it is or is not profitable. And when you do that, of course, profit has to do with whether you're going to make the money now or and and the heck with the, everybody else in the future. And so what happens is that when you realize, no, you have to live in a way which is sustainable, which is restorative, then it's possible to start looking for means of doing it. And you discover, oh, my gosh, there are all kinds of things out there, and they're all imaginative and they're interesting and they – are things that would never occur to you until you realize that others are already doing them and they work and they're making some people, in some cases, actually seriously rich. So it's just a matter of applying a different way of going about things. And most importantly, it doesn't have to be a great trial. It doesn't have to be that, well, now I'm going to live in a way that, you know, it's, is a lesser way than I was before. It actually ends up with doing things in such a manner that your life gets better, more exciting, more fun, more interesting, more innovative. Lisa, perhaps you could tell us um, a few, just a few things uh, that you both found that are easy to do and that would, that would bring profit to life as opposed to profit to commerce. Well, um I look upon it in two ways, one in which the things that individuals can do and one in which 
how we can change the way business is practiced and that the way people design the buildings that they're using and things like that. For simple, for simple things that, that we can do, individuals, use a shopping bag. Plastic bags are an absolute scourge in the environment. They also use a precious resource, which is oil, which is running out, um, which is becoming, which is a finite resource. I mean, it's as if you fill a bath with water and you start taking out little spoonfuls of water, um, but you still have a huge bath of water filled. But gradually, inevitably, the water will run out, and that's what's going to happen with oil. So we need to think seriously about how we're using that precious resource because we're clearly going to need it with us as long as we can. Um, so plastic bags are something that we could actually do without. Now, when I was growing up, there were no such things as plastic bags. This is shopping bags I'm talking about, but, of course, all plastic bags are a problem. They get into the oceans. The ocean is full of plastic. We think of the ocean as this clear, sparkling thing. No, it's full of plastic. And anyone who's been out in the ocean on boats will tell you that that's what they encounter all the time. Now, we can eradicate plastic from our lives. And in various places in Australia, in New Zealand, in um, Taiwan, in Ireland, all in, in France, all over the world, populations are beginning to say no to plastic bags. And this, it's very simple. You take your shopping bags with you. And so that you, you don't have to have those ubiquitous plastic bags that float around and kill animals and destroy. They take a thousand years to to decompose inside landfill, which leads us to the next problem, waste. We're the only species that produces waste in the sense that we produce our, what we what we use, what we um, discard is not picked up by other species. It's just thrown into landfill. So that starts using up um, areas which we which should be which are going to be needed for agriculture because the population grows and they need more and more food. And if you're creating these big toxic landfill spaces that you can't grow anything on, that's in the more people there are, the more waste there is. So we have to start thinking about how we what we do with the waste in our lives. Well, recycling really is an important thing, and it's not just recycling tins and cans and bottles and some plastics. It's actually now, in some areas in Europe, manufacturers are beginning to recycle the things that they make. For instance, you make a car, you sell it, someone uses it, and at the end of its life, it doesn't get trashed. It simply goes back to the manufacturer, and the manufacturer is responsible for recycling the car into a new car. So there is no waste. It's totally reused. What else is that doing? That's using the precious resources that are in that original car, which normally up until now have been just discarded, but actually they're minerals and they're, they're metals and they're, they're substances that can be reused. So if we start changing our manufacturing processes to allow us to remanufacture things that um, we use instead of just throwing them away, the thing is there is no such place as a way. When you throw something away, it stays within the closed-loop system, which is the Earth, and will at some point in some life come back to haunt us. And so it's better to just keep reusing it. And this is something that our forefathers used to do all the time, but we, as a result of the Industrial Revolution and the result of this extraordinary life which we've been leading where so many things are available and the economy which demands that new things are bought all the time, this whole throwing away philosophy has been is, is almost bred into us, but that's one thing we need to change. We need to look at every single thing we buy and think, 
Where did it come from? How was it made? And what will happen to it when I no longer need that thing? And once we start thinking like that, then we'll start seeing what we buy and use um, in our lives in a different way. Then there are things like, um, on a much bigger level, uh, alternative energy things, but there's something that Ford Motor Company did in Dearborn in their, in their plant, the, the biggest industrial site on earth at one point. And they, they had a stormwater runoff problem. They were, it was costing them millions of dollars to, through the Clean Water Act to deal with stormwater that was running off the roof of this building. So Bill McDonough, this visionary architect whose site everyone should go to who's interested in new building practices, he um, built a sod roof on the, the plants on the top of this plant on which they grow plants and have birds and trees and sedges and beehives and stuff. And immediately... What happened was there was no more stormwater runoff problem because the water was absorbed by the earth in the sod roof and things grew, insects came, the air was cleaner as a result of all the CO2 oxygen exchange was going on because of the stuff that was growing on the roof. And, and suddenly, um, it, 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 there was a huge benefit, not just to the people who were there, also to the company, because they saved millions of dollars in the solving of the stormwater runoff problem, but it also in, it, it meant that the environment in which the workers were working was infinitely more humane and, and more connected to the world in which they lived. So they began listening to birds and watching what was going on on the garden on the roof. And now there are a lot of roof gardens in cities. Chicago is full of them. New York is full of them. It's something that's beginning to happen. And it's only beneficial and it, in, it, in many, many levels. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Lisa, can you give us the, um, the website that you mentioned? Bill McDonough's. I think it's, um, I'm sorry, I don't have my book with me in here in Chautauqua, but I think it's McDonough.com. But if people just Google Bill McDonough, M-C-D-O-N-O-U-G-H, it will be amazing what comes up about him. I mean, he's doing extraordinary things. He's written a book called Cradle to Cradle. I mean, his philosophy is that everything we make has to go back to its beginnings. I mean, he, he talks about plastic bottles that are biodegradable, which are possible, in which there are seeds. So if someone does stupidly throw it away, a plant will grow out of that mm -hmm. bottle rather than it just becomes a pollutant and um, something that doesn't rot down in the environment and it just clutters and makes a mess and looks awful and is, is um, a toxic element in the environment. It actually becomes something that is nutritive and regenerative, restorative in the environment. And that's really the mind change that we're talking about. Roger, something came to my, uh, to, I should say, to my heart. What happens to whales when they die? Well, when they die, they, if they die in deep ocean, they sink, the, the corpse of the whale sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And when it goes down, it goes into an environment which is uh, very, very poor in nutrients of various sorts. And it uh, becomes an absolute feast for a whole series, not just of bacteria, but worms and a whole army of other species. And it really becomes like an island. An island to us in the middle of the ocean is a place where we can live and grow food and have a life. And that's the case in the ocean. And some of these islands of food which are created by the bodies of whales are 
uh, they're occupied by worms which can make do with them for long, long periods, 100 years, 150 years or more. And these, therefore, become island stepping stones which enable species to move that do themselves normally grow in conditions that are uh, very rare and very far apart. They can move from corpse to corpse of the whale, so to speak, and in that way spread out across huge oceans like the Pacific. And when that happens, it means that it's a way for it, it, this stepping stone set of islands of whales make it possible for species to spread. Well, when the whaling industry decimated the populations of whales and knocked them back to between 5% or in some cases less than they had originally been, it meant that suddenly it was like removing all the archipelagos in the world. It made it impossible for species that used to go from island to island to get there, and that's become a serious problem. You see, at uh, Future Primitive, we speak about the fact that uh, we need to create alternative communities, that we need to learn how to be in community with each other uh, in a different way, and this is what we've been talking about up till now. Can you tell us, Roger, what do you think we can learn from the animal world, from the co mammalian world uh, that could help us in building uh, different communities? Yes. Um, the, the main thing I think we can learn is that the way we once lived worked. And it wasn't as comfortable, it wasn't as healthy for each and every one of us, It, but it worked. It did not destroy the world. We have always damaged whatever ecosystem we entered when humans first came across the Bering Sea land bridge from the Old World into North and South America. They just decimated the wildlife in these areas. But they didn't destroy things to the degree which we are now destroying them. They were, they hardly even began <laughs> in that direction. But we were designed by the process of evolution to make it in an environment and a natural environment. So as soon as we change the environment and make it less and less natural and eventually alien, we then are on our own with our own systems, and our own systems are, in most cases, ludicrous. We have no idea how to manage ecosystems in a way which is beneficial to our own lives. And so we're just then sort of uh, push, moving around in the darkness of our ignorance. And that's, alas, what we're doing now. And so the future lies in returning to systems which are more naturalistic. We don't have to go back to living in caves and hitting each other with clubs, but I think we do have to recognize that the impact that humanity has on the environment, on the world, is more than the world can take. At the, there was an interesting study that came from the uh, Academy of the, Na the National Academy of Sciences in the United States, which is that organization which represents the most distinguished researchers in this country. And they do reports from time to time. And back in a while ago, they did a report in which they showed that the necessary sustainable in environment, in other words, what is needed to keep humanity alive sustainably, that was surpassed back in about 1980 which means that 25 years ago or so, 
humanity reached the point when we were exceeding the ability of the earth to support our species sustainably. And that means that we are now living on the agricultural equivalent, basically, of deficit spending. We are destroying vast whole uh, environments in which which we're just basically mining right now and not operating on in a sustainable manner. And that will eventually put us out of business as a species. That will put us into a world which you and I really don't want to live in or know about, and that world is the world that we're going to bequeath otherwise to our children. There's a lot of forces, particularly in my country, I'm ashamed to say, which are just blindingly ignorant about where we're headed. They ignore the, all the data. They ignore the science. They ignore this evidence, which, if you look at it closely yourself, just screams at you what's going on. And they say, no, 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 it's okay. This is all just an exaggeration. And that, alas, is a disaster. There's a new film which has come out in this country, in America, um, which is by Al Gore, and he runs down the scientific evidence for global warming, and he talks a lot about population as well. I think, as a scientist, that I honestly don't see how you could present the rather complex science behind that terrible problem in a more, uh, in a better way to get it across to the world at large. I think he's done an absolutely brilliant job. Well, what has been the reaction of the far right in this country? He has been compared to Goebbels in the Nazi Germany in the Second World War because he has been using propaganda to mislead people, which is that statement, that uh, accusation of Gore is one of the clearest examples of the kind of propaganda that Goebbels used that I've ever heard. I mean, it's outrageous because what he's really doing is helping people understand the importance of saving themselves. I'd like to just quietly say something as well and just further to what Roger said, just to go back to your question, Joanna, which is how would we learn from the community of other Mm -hmm. members of the animal kingdom? Well, we we have an intelligence which um, is both a curse and a blessing for us, And but that intelligence we should use to understand how natural systems work um, through the through the use of natural laws. We've been using economic laws and our laws and Congress's laws and England's laws and everyone's laws, but actually there are a set of laws that rule our life on earth which are above and beyond and completely out of touch with all of the things that we come up with. They're the natural laws. And we need, as human beings, to absolutely understand what natural laws do because it's natural laws that really rule our lives. And it's natural laws that also rule the lives of every other species that live on earth. And most other species that live on earth abide by those natural laws instinctively because that's what's in their ingrained into their DNA. Um, and then, and one of the natural laws is if a species becomes dominant to the point where it becomes a plague species, that is, I mean, the, that species doesn't survive. And that is what humanity is rapidly becoming. So for, for us to become alternative communities, I absolutely think the first thing we need to do is really start working together in groups to address the population problem because all the problems for the environment stem from the fact that humanity 
is becoming a plague species? And it's a really difficult question because it's, you look at your children and you think, my, my children, how can, you know, it's our natural instinct to produce children. It's our natural instinct to want to replicate our DNA. Our DNA is driving us to do that. But the trouble is, our DNA is also driving us to a situation where the earth will not be able to sustain us. So I think that um, alternative communities are a wonderful idea, but maybe it should become an alternative community in terms of not just where we're living outside the mainstream, but actually that we within the mainstream start making connections through the power of the Internet and through the fact that you and I can pick up a phone and talk to each other across the globe mm -hmm. and start connecting like minds to become real forces. I mean, the fact is we people need to start taking action, seriously start taking action in terms of wh what political choices their communities take and how they deal with things in their communities, like how they deal with their waste, what they do with their composting, what they do with the, the way the cars they drive, the choices they make as consumers. I, I would believe that the, the power of alternative communities would be in, in, in groups coming together, as is happening to happen in this country vis-a-vis um, the Iraq war and trying to really force the mainstream into taking notice of what is actually happening. Otherwise, the mainstream is going to destroy any alternative community that we have because if they go on blindly on their way, um, um, the fact that we've all set up perfect communities outside in, in uh, rural places and we're living according to nature's laws, the mainstream will just destroy the systems of the earth and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go down with the rest. Well said. Uh, Roger, I wanted to ask you because I'm, I'm really uh, fascinated by what Lisa just said about uh, us reproducing randomly. So I was wondering if, uh, if you had any findings from the whale world about... Um, reproducing in a sane way, reproducing ourselves in a sane way? Well, one of the uh, most important lessons that people can learn, I think, from whales is that whales appear to have brains which are uh, as complex, if not slightly more complex than our brains, and they have managed basically to survive for all these millions of years without destroying the world. They have been around in roughly their present form for about 20 million years. Well, nobody is able to trace back the ancestry of humans as far as 20 years with anything but very large leaps and pretty big guesses. And yet, in the case of whales, you can get back there with quite a lot more in intervening information. And it means that you know, they've done it. They've done what we need to be able to do. They've lived on this earth with a fancy brain without destroying it. Well, notice the main difference between humans and whales, I would say, in terms of what they might otherwise do with a brain, is they don't have a hand with an opposable thumb. They can't reach out and pick something up except in their lips, and they are therefore... Uh, not able to do the kind of manipulations that we can do. Well, what do we do with the manipulations of which we're clever, we're capable? We do stuff which is totally self-serving and which, in fact, uh, is ill thought out, has 
uh, an application usually only for just a few days, weeks, months, years, perhaps, but not decades or or or, or maybe even, or generations or centuries or millennia. No, no, no. We don't even think about that kind of thing. And think, for example, of every government in the world, the government of Spain, the government of the United States, the government of any country, look at the laws that they are passing from day to day, the business that occupies them. There is nothing, I would say, that passes what I call the 500-year law. It is not possible in these governments to look at anything that they're involved with, my own most particularly included, which would be acceptable to generations alive 500 years from now. The only thing which matters is happening today in any government, in any capital of any country, anywhere in the world, is laws which have to do with the environment. So yesterday, for example, when Japan managed to retake the advantage in the International Whaling Commission and overcome the the, uh, moratorium on whales, it hasn't stopped the moratorium, but she's now in the driver's seat. She now has control of the of the moratorium i mean of the uh, international wedding commission and that will ultimately lead to a destruction of the moratorium that means that that was an absolute disaster i don't know what else took place in the world at large that was as much of a disaster because that has to do with the fate of a whole suite of species namely whales well my point is this that we concern our news concerns itself with absolutely trivial matters, matters of no importance whatever in the larger, longer scheme of things. And what is important just gets ignored completely. And the only thing that our descendants will care about, they won't give a hoot whether, you know, it was Bush or his people or some other government that won in the United States. They probably won't even know what the United States was, or they'll have a hard time remembering from their early histories what it was. They will only care about basically what we did for the environment that it made it possible for them to live their lives, what options we left open to them. And that brings me to what I consider is really the most important point of all, and that is that the terrible problems we face are actually a most singular opportunity for greatness, the most singular opportunity for greatness that any generation has ever faced in the history of any civilization. That's what we have to look at it as and realize that we can either go forward and destroy everything as we now are and we will be the most vilified generation in history, hated by everyone because we knew what the problem was but we ignored it and just lived comfortable lives and wrecked everything, or we can solve these problems and we will become more loved than any generation has ever become before, and I suspect will ever become in the future. Just one, sorry, Joanna, as far as what the whales teach us about population, I think is that simply, um, like all uh, species apart from us, they reproduce, I would think, and Roger can probably correct me here, they reproduce according to what their uh, environment is, is producing for them. Um, so if, if, if food resources are scarce, then um, they'll, they'll not um, produce ch- children. Is that right, Roger? Well, yes. What happens is that they, they are unable to reproduce more than – I don't think it's done in any conscious way. I don't think they make a decision to do this or that, probably. They, I suspect, don't understand all these matters particularly. I think they use their brains 
to deal with completely different matters, but um, it, they nevertheless obey simple natural laws, which is if there's not enough food, they they uh, don't reproduce a calf that year. Yes. Lisa, I would like to ask you, uh, because we're going to come around to speak about uh, the piece that Roger and you are writing together and are performing together, but before we come into that subject, I wanted to ask you if you felt that you feel there was an experience in your life that uh, predisposed you to bring together both of your gifts and concerns, one being an actor, uh, a magnificent actor, I actually saw you play the cherry orchard, play in the cherry orchard, mm. and and your concern as a um, as an ecologist, as an eco poet. Well, um, yes, there was one. I mean, I I grew up in New Zealand uh, in a very uh, um, unstressed, populated country, in a very beautiful country, um, where the land uh, the land is extremely potent. Um, I mean, you could stand on, on black sand beaches where I grew up and feel the earth move. And you, you, you knew you were in a very young area of the world. God, our cell phones are going crazy here. But um, so, so there was that. And I, may, I remember uh, um, years, when I was very, very young, my father, we were watching a butterfly coming out of a chrysalis. And my father said to me, you know, if humanity lived in generations like insects rather than intergenerationally, there would be no need for any explanations as to why we're here and what it's all about and, oh, my God, that leads to God because there needs to be a reason as to why we're here. Someone needs to have put us here. We wouldn't know that if we were if we were like a butterfly, we'd come out of a chrysalis, we'd live our life, we'd... Um, have our we, we'd mate and then we would die, but we wouldn't know about death and about our grandparents, and we wouldn't know our mothers and fathers. We would simply just be living in the world like all other, you know, like animals, like insects. And that really struck me profoundly as a child. I mean, I didn't. I mean, it's something that's one of the mantras that I've lived with. So therefore, it was very profound for me at the time. I was about six, and I went, "Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense." Then some years later. I read I read a book called Elma Gantry, mm-hmm. and at the end, when I was about twelve or thirteen, at the end of that book, I, for some reason, I just remember lying on my bed, having finished it, and put the book down, and I went, I would love to have the power to change people's hearts and minds the way a preacher does. Mm-hmm. Um, now I was not brought up as in any Christian religion, therefore I didn't, I wasn't, I moved to do that part. But it seems that I, through my acting, my, my drive as an actor has always been to change, to reveal the human condition to people. I've never wanted to be famous or a star or a, you know, whatever. I've always been interested, much more interested in the power of language to affect people and for it to actually reveal to people the human frailty, the human condition, the, the joys and sorrows of life, and to help them understand the, what life is about through the, the lens of a playwright. And so when Roger came, to, came up with this idea of creating a program that combines science and poetry, mm-hmm. it seemed to me like a natural progression because, of course, the wonderful thing about our show and the, the way it works 
so profoundly on people who see it, is that here is a man with a, a lifetime's experience in, in, and that's known scientifically absolutely valid and accurate, and he's, he has a, 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 a sense of, um, of, you know, people take him seriously because he is what he is, a scientist of proven worth. And he speaks the truth scientifically about the way the world works. And I, as the spirit side of the piece, speak the poetic interpretation of that, the, 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 what sometimes is an argument against it, or an argument for it, or, or an emotional viewpoint. And the poetry, because it's, it touches a deep part of us, the, the primitive brain in us. I mean, I'm sure we spoke poetry with rhythm and were and sounds with rhythm before we put in together any kind of profound intellectual ideas. It touches at our very core. And so that opens doors inside the listener uh, in, in such a way that they're ready to receive the truth of the science as it as Roger expresses it and I think that's why the po the po the program is so impactful because people really those of us who those of those who have seen it are really um affected by it and I think it is the power of the poetry. So really my journey has been through Shakespeare and great writers like Chekhov and I'm working on the Cherry Orchard again which is such fun to revisit it. Um and and now to great poets. And all of that is about awaking human consciousness. So I've, been, I've really been walking the same path all the time. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, Roger, I'd like to interject here. I, um, I read your letter uh, to the Japanese uh, people, and I just want to uh, repeat your website, which is www.ocean. Alliance.org, in one word, you speak in that letter about uh, whales and troubadours, uh, whales uh, using rhyme, um, perhaps to remember songs, as the troubadours did. And so, could you please speak to that? Yes, um Joanna, it, what, that is actually research that was done by my f first wife, Katie Payne, and it's a wonderful thing. She discovered not only that whales are changing their songs, uh, which is very unusual for any animal, uh, but she's also discovered that they, she and a woman named Linda Guinea discovered that, in fact, they were uh, employing rhyme in their song, realizing that if somebody was speaking a language of which you did not know a single word, you would nevertheless realize when they were reciting poetry because they would be speaking in a rhythmic way which repeated uh, sounds near the end of each rhythmic section, uh, the rhyme that came at the end. And so she showed that it was rhyme, and then the two of them showed, she and Guinea showed that it was uh, <laughs> individual that these rhymes occurred in songs which were very complex, that songs that were simple and straightforward didn't have rhyme, but those that were complex did. Well, of course, rhyme was used by the troubadours as a mnemonic device, a way of remembering what came next in, in uh, difficult songs. If you were reciting the whole Odyssey, for example, you would have to be able to re keep referring to things in a way that reminded you of what the next topic was. 
And it looks like whales are doing the same thing, which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, it's also, uh, you know, shocking to most people that, that that thing that we were, I'm sure, certain was an entirely human invention seems to have been invented several million years earlier than we're able to go back. Well, I, I see uh, how this uh, ties in so beautifully with... Uh, with this piece that uh, you are, you have written and you are performing, um, Whales and Troubadours. Um, I have heard an early version of the, of the piece and I, in fact, um, I often listen to it in my car when I'm driving up and down this mountain here in Spain, going to the sea and coming back. So could you speak uh, one of you, both of you, about this piece that you have created and that uh, is, has been growing since I heard it in um, October. Yes, it's Lisa has, I think, made a wonderful uh, general idea of how it opens doors in people's minds. Uh, I feel that what we're really dealing with is the knowledge of science and the wisdom of poetry. And when I wanted to do this with Lisa, it was based on my years of having given lectures in science and watched the reaction of people to those lectures and thought to myself, well, yes, I think a few of them got it, so to speak, but I'm not sure I really got it across. And then spending night after night going to performances that Lisa does, whenever she does a play, I try to see all of the performances, not just one. And um, it, I realized, you know, this is this ability to communicate, which Lisa has, and I can sadly say that not very many people do have it, but she certainly does. This ability to communicate to an audience is so shockingly powerful that it's something that no scientist that I'm, well, I've, I've heard some on a couple of occasions do extraordinary jobs with their areas of expertise, but really not opening the heart in that same way. You can actually say to Lisa, break their hearts, and she can do it. And that's not something a scientist can do. And so I thought if you could combine that access to the human imagination and heart with the sort of information that so desperately needs to be in the minds of people now because of the problems people are creating, you would really have something. And that's what we've tried to do. And We've found more and more poetry, and interestingly enough, most of it comes from uh, a time now, uh, modern times, not from ancient poetry. We do have a few things from ancient poetry, but uh, not ancient, but uh, older, more classical poets. But much of what we're getting comes from modern poets. And one of them, Joanna, is somebody you introduced us to, Victor de Suvero, from a program, one of these same podcast that you did before, which was called Weaving the Tapestry, and uh, that now is the absolute central moment in this whole play that we do together, this whole uh, thing we do together. We do Victor's poem, written for you, and that whole event called Weaving the Tapestry. It's what Lisa does at the moment when we have descended, 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 descended down to the, to just absolutely terrible information about things that tell you what how disastrous the world is. And now it turns around and it starts up and up and up and up. And by the end you see, yes, it's possible. It really can be done. And then as people file out, they get this book that Lisa did, this compendium of websites, the thing called What Can I Do? of alphabet for living 
and these whole topics are in alphabetical order and people can go home and act with them. That's, to me, how the whole thing works. And the program is called Sea Change, Reversing the Tide. Um, and that's that, that we, we've been, since, since, we, since you saw it, Joanna, we've been working with um, some people from the Marion Institute and who, who we were connected to through the Marion Institute so, uh, who have been helping us to build a website, and, which is not up yet but will be soon, and uh, to, to make a promotional material, create a poster, and we, they, we changed the title from <clears throat> Lessons from Copernicus to um, Sea Change, which, is a, which means a profound transformation. And that is exactly what we're asking people to undergo. Um, and to reverse the tide. And the wonderful thing is that since we we chose that word, um, it, the word keeps popping up everywhere. It seems as if we're at a moment where th- where that word is becoming a mantra. And so um, I feel pleased and proud that we've connected into the tapestry, which is what um, what Blitz's poem is all about. Sea change. Sea change, reversing the tide. Yes. Tell us a little bit what uh, you imagine for um, for sea change. What you imagine? Well, um, we have a number of dreams for it, and it depends, of course, on funding. But we're working on that too. Um, the, the first thing is that we wanted to, uh, I, this play I'm doing now is the last play I'm going to do this year. I'm spending the rest of the year and maybe into the next year not acting anymore, but just simply working for Sea Change. We've created an institute. Um, in which, which is out there to promulgate the, the, the performances. The main thing is that we do performances wherever we can and um, to as many different sorts of people, churches, schools, you know, industrial places, um, town halls, everywhere. We've done, we actually, um, I did an edition of What Can I Do in, for Australia and one for New Zealand and we actually did a, a, a tour of New Zealand, uh, one night stands in New Zealand doing the show, which was really, really exciting for me to go home with this piece of work. And it went very well there too. And um, there are, there are, I, I have a vision of us doing um, doing a sustainability tour around the country where you go in, you come into a town in a hybrid car, of course, and you, you have connections made with everybody in the, in the, in that town who are working in a sustainable way, whether it's to do with dealing with the garbage or growing of organic food or using um, local people to create local industry or, what, or whatever it is and you bring all those together you have a kind of fair you do our show and then the next day you have a whole series of workshops with people talking and engaging the entire community in what is actually happening in their own within a 50-mile radius of their own town, where they can buy healthy food, where they can deal with the waste problems that they have, how they can use and buy things that are made within their community rather than going off to big box stores or or, or getting things in by, by email or the Internet or something. So they can actually start sustaining their own communities and that they can actually become aware of all the stuff that's happening because the trouble is our lives are so frantic that very few of us are actually aware of the things that are going on in their own community, where they can buy green energy in their own community, things like that. So that's one dream I have. The other dream I have, and we have a Broadway director already lined up to help us with this, is to put the show on in New York 
I'm hoping in September, but we've got a long way to go yet before, but Leonard, Leonard Follier, the director who we are going to be working with and whom we have worked with on the text of this, is free for six weeks in September. I really want to have this piece performed in New York um, before the next election so that what can happen is uh, we do the show, it's an hour long, and then there's an interval, and then at the end of the interval, we every night have a talk back, an audience discussion with a leading person in either in the environment or religious movements or business community or, you know, educational community, anybody who, who is involved in this new way of being, this old way of being, um, can answer audience questions and so we can get a dialogue going so that people can start to really approach this next election with an informed viewpoint that's going out into the world so that because I'm hoping that what would happen would be there'd be some kind of media outreach from what we're doing and, and uh, you know people would start talking and I want, I want it to go on television um, Victor suggested when we met him recently that I start working on a what can I do television series which is another thing I'd like to start working on um, so that, that those so that again we go around we make films television programs on take a subject like um, what do you do with the waste food from restaurants? What happens to that food? Does it just get thrown away and filled landfill? Or is there something more positive you can do with that? And there are a lot of people getting involved with that. Secondharvest.org is one of those people. So you do a program on that, or you do a program on water, or you do a program on whatever subject you take. And we, we interview experts in the field, and we discuss the simple things that people can do. So that's another dream I have for this. And um, and then we, Roger and I, want to start doing workshops with people from other countries to take the the program Sea Change and the others that Roger is itching to write on water and green business and and other subjects and and introduce them to other countries by translation and through performances by a scientist and an, and, and an actress from those countries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously with a researcher, we could find poems that would be connecting into those countries. So that it becomes a real movement. Mm-hmm. That's our, our vision. It's a big vision. <laughs> Sitting here in Chautauqua in a little house, it's a big vision. <laughs> but I believe that we can do it. We just, you know, we just, uh, we, because the amazing thing that's again happening with this program is it's collecting around it. People like you, people like Victor, people like the Marion Institute who are actually, you know, engaged in moving us forward and because they see how important, I mean, we all know how important this message is. Somehow we've got to get the word out. Because I believe that people are good-hearted. I believe that people don't really want to destroy their earth. From whatever viewpoint they're living on the world, whatever thing they believe in, I mean, in the end, we're human, we're part of the animal kingdom, we are part of life on earth. And life on earth is what sustains us. And we have to... We have to become acknowledge that we need to start paying attention to life on earth. Absolutely beautifully said. So... I want to ask you both, um, can people, could people write you and invite you to come to their community and present your piece? Yes, yes. If they email me through my website, which is whatcanidousa.org, that's all one 
sense, in all one word, whatcanidousa.org. And there's a thing there, contact Lisa Harrow. And if you click on that, you can email me. And then, um, and then I'll get the email and then we can, we can work from there. Yes, definitely. Very good. Roger, is there something you'd like to add or perhaps give your website as well? Yes, my website's very easy to remember. It's Roger Payne. It's P-A-Y-N-E. There are a couple of spellings of that, but Roger Payne, one word, uh, at whale.org. W-H-A-L-E, whale.org. So Roger Payne at whale.org. And your, e- and your website, darling? And our website is, well, it, it's, it, the, the most interesting of our websites is run by uh, PBS, the public television in the United States. So it's pbs.org forward slash odyssey, which is the name of our boat that has just been around the world collecting samples from sperm whales all around the world in an effort to figure out how polluted the oceans of the earth are. There's a lot of information on that website. It's very entertainingly done. And then there's oceanalands.org, which is the main website for what is Institute. Yeah. Well, for those who don't know, I would like to say that uh, Lisa Harrow and Roger Payne are married to each other. And so I want to thank you both for a really, really wonderful conversation. That's wonderful, Joanna. Thank you. We've loved talking to you. This is the second one we've had, and I hope there are going to be many more. Well, so do I. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye. All right, great stuff there from Joanna Harcourt-Smith, interviewing Lisa Harrow and Dr. Roger Payne. Stick around, we'll be back in just a few seconds with an interview that I did with Star Newland and Dr. Michael Heisen from the Sirius Institute in Puna, Hawaii. You're listening to Dialogues. You can find us on the web at futureprimitive.org. Good afternoon, or good morning, good evening to you, wherever you might be as you listen to this radio program my name is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Dialogues, a production from Future Primitive, sponsored by the Marion Institute. Today, my guests are the wonderful Star Newland and Dr. Michael Heisen, two research partners, working partners, uh, at a dolphin institute in Hawaii called the Sirius Institute. Dr. Heisen is a Ph.D. neurobiologist and marine biologist, and Star Newland has an amazing history of her own. We're going to take just a moment Uh, to get right to them and let them tell you more about themselves and about the wonderful work that they're doing in Hawaii. So without further delay, let's do that and say hello to Star Newland and Dr. Michael Heisen. Hi, you two. Aloha. 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 Thank you so much for being with us today on Dialogues. My name is Mike Hagan, and you and I are familiar. We've done some, uh, some talking and some work on another project that I do, and I have a tremendous amount of appreciation for both of your work and your contribution to uh, the Cetacea community, and I'm really pleased to be able to bring you to our new, our new listening audience that is uh, connected to a website and a project that we call Future Primitive. So I wanted to get that out of the way, but from my heart, thank you both very much for uh, for taking the time and spending it with us this afternoon. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's a great pleasure always to be involved with what you're doing. All right. Well, let's for the people who are not familiar with your work, I'd like to do a little bit of background both on. Uh, the two of you as individuals, and also the work that you're doing in Hawaii. So uh, ladies first, I think we'll start with Star, and uh, 
Star, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own background and maybe how you ran into Michael, and then we can talk to Michael and uh, bring it all together with the Sirius Institute, okay? Okay, thanks, Michael. Well, um, my background is pretty varied, and I come out of a business background, um, particularly in Vancouver, Canada, where I matured as an adult, and then I got into TV production. So for a number of years, I hosted my own weekly talk show out of Vancouver. And um, while I was doing that talk show in particular, I encountered the dolphins. So various guests came my way involved with dolphins. And more particularly, the part that intrigued me about them was the idea of giving birth in the water with dolphins for human women. Right. And um, back in the early 80s, when this first came to my awareness, it was still quite, quite novel. And yet when I heard about it, it struck something very deep in me. And indeed started a course correction of my life, which brought me increasingly into the realm of dolphin consciousness and dolphin people like the Lilies, John and Tony Lilly of the Human Dolphin Foundation, and a number of other people like Estelle Myers, who's considered the modern mother of water birthing and water birthing with dolphins. Okay. From there, um, I was inspired to write a screenplay outline about a woman dolphin researcher who was all excited about dolphins and birth for women and telepathy. And uh, so this was like the framework for the Institute, the Sirius Institute, which later became a more concrete reality, let's say, after I met Dr. Heisen at John Lilly's 75th birthday party. He was brought there and delivered to me, really, by Robert <laughs> Anton Wilson, who had written a number of books, including the Illuminati Trilogy. Sure, the number 23 and all of these things. And um, Michael and I gravitated to each other at this party, and then that began our um, our intellectual collaboration to ground the Sirius Institute and make it something, you know, more substantial than me, um, you know, just working on it on my own. And so for over 16 years now, Michael and I have been working together and um, creating all kinds of wonderful things and events and reaching out to people around the world and actually even beyond. Because <laughs> last year, one of our projects was to do with sending live whale songs from the humpback whales into deep space for the first time ever. So the series is actually, we were asking the people in Cape Canaveral to um, send the whale songs out to Sirius. <laughs> so we could like send the songs back home, the messages back home to the stars. So we've we've reached a lot of people, and um, Michael has just been a phenomenal partner to work with, and um, just continues to do amazing things. And also, uh, we have a website called PlanetPuna.com. Right. Let's mention that. that. Yeah. People can um, take a look at, and much of it, most of it, really is through Dr. Heisen's amazing web work. And also, Laura, your webmaster, Michael, who's mm. going to be um, finishing up work on our website. So that's, in a nutshell, um, a good part of our relationship. Um, one last thing, though, is Michael has helped um, very much so to raise my son, Tiger, mm. from a former marriage, actually. So Michael is also Hanai dad, they call it, in mm. way, to Tiger, who's now 18. So we've raised him successfully to a young adult. Is not going to be a father in the next few months too. So That's right. life comes full circle. 
All right. Well, fantastic. And let's uh, mention that website one more time before we get to Dr. Heisen. And it is www.planetpuna, P-L-A-N-E-T-P-U-N-A.com. And, uh, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of information there uh, and some uh, that is astonishing, as a matter of fact. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit further about the website and some of the information there in just a few minutes. But, uh, but let's say hi to Michael. Hi, Dr. Heisen. Aloha. How are you? Good. Let's uh, continue where Star left off a little bit, but maybe first a little bit of background about you and how you got involved in this whole uh, this whole game. Uh, well, let's see. I guess it goes back to when I was uh, over 13. I was uh, studying bats and biological sonar. I learned how to get into caves to find bats. I was doing experiments on them and uh, ran into John Lilly's books called Man and Dolphin, which, in which, among other things, they were teaching English to the dolphins at the end, and that was so fascinating, I really wanted to meet them, and my brother was looking for a job just before he got into college, and I happened to talk him into getting a job down in Texas training dolphins, so at 14 or so, I got to live with the dolphins for a summer. Amazing. Probably one of the happiest summers I ever had, so they were always an interest in my life, so I became interested in, in consciousness and animal behavior and how all that, that worked. And along the way, I was also quite interested in space. So I've had a fairly varied career. Got three degrees out of the University of Miami in biology. Ended up at Caltech Jet Propulsion Labs and working on some private rockets. And after all that had gone on for about 15 years, um, decided it was time to get back to the golf research. And eventually met Star at John Lilly's 75th birthday party, which was quite remarkable. That is a remarkable story, actually. She was writing things in her journal that were just what was going through my head about what we should do with living together with the dolphins and birthing babies with them and so on. So it seemed about time to take her movie script and just make it a real interview, which we have proceeded to do for the last uh, 16 years or so. Mm -hmm. All right. So so let's talk a little bit then about the Sirius Institute. Uh, You named it the Sirius Institute, Star mentioned recently that uh, the whale project that was a uh, project that sent the whale songs out into deep space uh, he had a request to send that uh, in particular to the star Sirius mm-hmm. so uh, let's talk about the Sirius Institute and we might as well talk about the name a little bit what's the inspiration behind it well that's a really good question Michael because um, last summer when our group was over in England we were very fortunate to meet Robert Temple and his wife Olivia Temple and the Sirius Institute was named for the work that Robert did in a book called The Serious Mystery. Right, I'm familiar with I'm sure many of your audience are familiar with. Sure. Um, as I, as I had my first encounter with the Human Dolphin Foundation dolphins, Joe and Rosie, who are pretty famous in the world of dolphins, if you will, mm-hmm. having hung out with the Lily people and everyone who came their way over a number of years, um, after I swam with them in March of 1985, along with their companion, Roberta Goodman, I was driving back home to Vancouver, across country on my own, wondering what to do with what had just happened, which was that my entire being was awakened or activated or triggered or something, some change of immensity was taking place, and I was inspired to do all kinds of dolphin and whale-related projects. Mm-hmm. So when I was on my way back home, I was 
planning already to incorporate a new company, and I was looking for a name for it. And with this new company, I was going to put in film projects and books and workshops and all kinds of things and make it a public trading venture because that was the line of work I was in at the time. And lo and behold, someplace in Texas, I had the inspiration, I know, I'll call it the serious connection (laughs) after Robert Temple's book because Robert's book talks about beings um, from the star system, Sirius, having come here um, many times and many years ago and landing in places such as with the Dogon people and bringing them the arts of civilization. And I thought, well, this is very much what this project is about, is to really bring the arts of civilization back to humans, because in the 80s, it seems we had already gotten well away from that. Right. So um, I was inspired in the name. The series Connection was incorporated in Vancouver, May 22nd, 1985. And so that was like the original company. And then um, after... The screenplay, though, is when I made the institute that that was about, the Sirius Institute, because then it all fell together that way. Okay. And this was still before you had met Michael? Yes. Okay. Yes. That was in 85. Michael and I met in 80, oh, 1990, January the 6th, 1990. Amazing. Okay. All right. So then what happens? After I named it? Yeah. Well, then my whole life completely changed because I had just met the dolphins. <laughs> Big time. Everything left. Uh, my uh, my husband's and my relationship um, changed completely. My home situation changed. Everything. Um, I had to, I chose to rather, undergo a period of letting go of my past and my identity with that past and pretty well everything. It was a clean sweep. And um, then... News to me, or surprisingly to me, I was actually preparing for child um, childbearing. Huh. I was getting ready to have my first child, and at this point, I was in my late 30s. It was kind of a surprise that this was going to happen for me, but um, since I had encountered the idea of dolphins and birth, I was actually willing to, um, to go ahead and create new life and have a different kind of birth experience than what had been commonly available at that time. So it all rolled into a new life, new partner, new husband, and then um, my son Tiger came through. And it was after Tiger and I left Vancouver to come to California that we um, we met up with Michael. And then Michael stepped in and raised him since about the age of two. Okay, so, Star, we've mentioned water birth a couple of times. Uh And... First of all, that might be a concept that most people aren't, or that a lot of people aren't familiar with to begin with, but then we bring the dolphins into the picture. Uh, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about water birth, maybe, and about your ideas on it, and how we might utilize it in the future, and some of the things that you have in mind for your own projects in the future. And then, Michael, uh, I'd like to have you respond after Sarah talks a little bit about that, uh, about some science uh, uh, in the background of this, okay? All right. Yeah, Michael has the science part. (laughs) Um, Well, when I first heard about dolphins and birth, it really resonated very profoundly with me. And it triggered this uh, search within myself for what had happened, what had been my own birth experience, and why up until that time I was um, very reluctant, to say the least, to even entertain having a child. Because something very, you know, um, 
different than my own birth experience was so traumatic or anything like that because um, overall I had a pretty good experience. Uh -huh. But there were things that came up during my birth time and right after that caused me to feel um, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I don't want to go there. So when I found out about dolphins in birth, that triggered, as I mentioned, that whole part of me. And then I realized that I guess the biggest thing was that I came out and um, there was a tremendous sense of separation because that was the current belief system at the time with my mother and others that, you know, once the baby's born, you're separate from each other. And that created some kind of long-term feeling in me that had yet to be even recognized, much less remedied. So when I met the dolphins and started feeling connected because of my telepathic experiences with them, I started to feel good about life. I felt trust about it. I felt part of it. I felt... Ah, okay, now I see what happened. Now I can have children and have a better outcome for my children. So at an emotional kind of level, this was my driver that put me into that situation. But then I had met Estelle Myers and I had met Tony Lilly and John Lilly, and we spoke pretty extensively about dolphins and water and birth. And so there are many other benefits that come from this, including... Um, being a dolphin-conscious human being. Um, I wrote my first published article called How to Raise a Dolphin-Conscious Child for the L.A. Um, Whole Life Times just before we came to Hawaii, so that would be like 1990, mm -hmm. November 1990. And it, it's on our website. You can go there to Sirius Institute Writings on planetpuna.com. But it explains more detail about the changes that took place in me and the feeling of connectivity and how I raised my son so that he would have this feeling with him throughout his life and thereby, you know, having other work to do for himself perhaps, but at least um, having that part of his work already done. Mm -hmm. Because partly having children is about rectifying or remediating the things that could have been done better for us, mm -hmm. and we pass it on to our children. And in passing it on to our children, it kind of works backwards in time and energy to us. So I felt more complete with my life, and my son was raised with a more complete life, and now he's going to be a father, so that's going to be passed on. And we've been able to affect generations now, and this is part of what the work is about, is to help people heal their birth trauma, their birth situations, and um, pass that healing and wholeness on. All right. Okay, so it's a wonderful concept, first First of all, and I think both of you know, I know you're going to be a grandmother soon, Star, you're talking about that, uh -huh. and and my wife Ashley is going to deliver our second child in September, uh -huh. and we're we're hoping to have a much more natural uh, birth than we, than we did last time with our first son, but at any rate, it's really interesting stuff, and I'd like Michael to talk to it a little bit, because one of the first, not one of the first, but one of the most amazing pieces that I've read uh, relative to this whole situation is something that's on the Planet Puna website, and it's called The Precocious Human Baby. And it was a really interesting piece for me that Dr. Heisen wrote. And, Michael, maybe you could talk about that a little bit, because uh, I think there's information in there that very few, pe uh, very few people are aware of. Well, thank you. Um, I got to thinking about underwater birth a lot, having one in the dark, of course. And so I've read Tarkovsky's work and uh, Michelle Adant especially. Sure. And I thought about it for many years. And there's some basic things about water birth that are obvious, which is, uh, first of all,
do it at all. Like the baby is already built for, um, well, they only breathe when they're brought to the surface, for example. So when they're born underwater, they come out transitioning from the amniotic fluid, which is water, to the body of water that the mom is in. So there's a smooth transition. The head is buoyant, the brain is buoyant, and the transition is, is easy. Um, once they're out, they're still breathing on the umbilical, so unless there's some uh, pathological thing going on, they can still breathe fine. And they have a reaction already built in that they only breathe when their face comes out of the water. Huh. So they have been kept, I mean, they, under certain circumstances, they're kept under the water for several minutes. Usually it's only about a minute or two after the birth that they're brought to the surface. So that the basic point is that the mother is uh, happier in the water, the baby transitions easier in the water, uh, and that we do that fine and the baby is already adapted to hmm. only breathing when its face comes out of the water. So that's pretty remarkable in itself. I was thinking about this, and then watching the films, especially from Elena Tanetti. She's got a new DVD called uh, Birth as We Know It. Yeah, yeah. And several other films along those lines. Yeah, I spoke to her just a couple of days ago, as a matter of fact, thanks to you guys, and, and she's going to be on Radio Orbit in just a couple of weeks. So. Just on a purely observational level, you watch the babies come out, they immediately wiggle, and you realize the wiggling motions are swimming. Huh. So immediately, once, once they're out of the uh, uterus, in the water. They're swimming. Their eyes are open. They're often smiling, and they're looking up at the people of the water with their eyes. I know from other work that our eyes and ears and other sensory systems are fully on at birth. And that's a sign of what's called a precocious animal. A precocious animal is one that's ready to go immediately after birth, like uh, a zebra has to run, a wildebeest has to run, a dolphin has to swim. Mm -hmm. So they're ready to do that. So they're called precocious. The other one has got this funny name called altricial. That would be more like a kitten whose eyes take several days to open up, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Or a, maybe an opossum or a marsupial where they have a lot of development to do after the birth. Um, in general, they've always thought that humans are on that end of things where they're helpless in the gravity field. And so when you see the baby come out and he's already swimming, eyes open, smiling, all that, he's obviously precocious in the water. So the only reason we've, we've thought otherwise is because we've been birthing our babies into the wrong environment. Very interesting. So we looked at that a little more. It turns out other cultures, like the Polynesians, did water birth. The Hawaiians did up until at least 1937 with the Dolphin And one of the early Cook reports, Captain Cook, when he came into Polynesia, is they come into a bay and they see these brown things floating in the water and they thought they were coconuts. And it turns out they were babies out in the lagoon sleeping. <laughs> so it turns out water birth babies can sleep in the water. Some of them sleep face down, totally asleep, and just roll their head to get a breath every once in a while. Wow. And they're perfectly happy in the water. Amazing. So we have all these pre-adaptations to the water. So my view is that if you give the babies a chance to be in the water, then they, they have full mobility and 3D experience for months until they start to crawl. And uh, the babies have sort of a baby fat that keeps them floating during the time they would be in the water. And then as they learn to crawl, they lose some of that fat, so they become less buoyant. Mm -hmm. So it looks like we're amphibious in the sense that we start in the water and then go on to the land. So we'd like to bring that back. Um, and I'll just say very quickly um, that so far the data is, the amount of data we have on this is rather small. And Igor 
Smirnov, Tchaikovsky's research director, says that the babies born in water developed six months after over the first two years of life may have 150 grams more brain weight, and the ones born with the dolphins apparently are ambidextrous. Hmm. As a rule? So far, yeah. That's what Elena reports. All the babies born in black sea with the dolphins were ambidextrous. That is astonishing, Michael. What do you make of that? Well, that's, that's very astonishing because uh, the ordinary biological story is that you'd expect 80% right-handed uh, genetic. Mm-hmm. So it'll be really interesting when we get more numbers to find out perhaps that handedness is a function of birth trauma. Fascinating. So that's my current guess. Huh. I'll be darned. Well, okay, that, that, that was going to be my next question, is that, uh, would have, would, and, and is, I guess, that is my next question, is the significance of the dolphins being present. And, and I guess the significance of the, of the dolphin relationships ongoing, uh, in a child's life. Star, maybe you can, uh, both address that. Mm-hmm. One of the projects that the Sirius Institute is working on, and has been for some time, is what we call the interspecies cohort. Because um, for a number of reasons, we have yet to establish effective, consistent communications with the dolphins and the whales um, beyond people's, um, for the most part, uh, reported telepathic communication. However, when we want to establish the cetacea, the dolphins and the whales, as a people, um, Securing recognition for them through the United Nations, through their protocol to establish a group as a people, what we find is that um, unless there is a way that they can communicate on their own behalf, they're likely going to continue to be treated as though they were simply marine animals, mm-hmm. i.e. subject to the Navy's sonar blasting them to smithereens all over the world, our Navy and others. Yes. Um, subject to tuna fisheries, um, taking them out by the thousands, subject to the Japanese still clubbing them to death and whaling, um, just narrowly being averted from whaling again through the IWC and so on. So our project of the interspecies cohort is specifically intended to help to create a language that is being developed between human children and infants and babies and the dolphins, particularly if we could find dolphins ready to birth when the human mothers are ready to birth and we have the two babies species birthed together. Um, we would observe over a period of time the language that would be developed. We would have built-in real-time translators of another language, and this would open a tremendous whole new world for us as well as really for the whole planet. So our plan is to birth these kids together, study the development of language, and establish that communication so that other people would then be able to hear what the dolphins and the whales have to say for themselves. My- and in that way, we would expect that they would be brought up to a State Department level, that we would establish diplomatic relations with them, that we would establish treaty relations with them, nation-to-nation, people-to-people, securing their preservation and their well-being. Wow. Um, Michael. Yes. Star talks about the dolphins and the whales as if they are, well, I I won't say uh, undifferent, but as if they're basically the same as us. 
what evidence do we have that these creatures are intelligent and actually can communicate or are in, intentioned on communicating with us? Well, first of all, we're, we're both mammals. We're both suckled with milk and so on. So we're both warm-blooded, so we're very close that way. Um, we share uh, 13 out of 22 chromosomes that often are identical to human chromosomes. So I don't quite know how far we can take that, that there is a relationship. And the rest of the 22 chromosomes of the dolphins are rearrangements of the first uh, 13. So in that sense, uh, there's a lot of human genome in the dolphins or vice versa. Um, in addition to that, they have very large brains, uh, larger than ours, with a longer evolutionary history, maybe 15 million years at least, possibly 30 million, with brains sizes larger than ours, and of equal complexity. The expansion in the cetacean brain uh, is in the neocortex, which is where we attribute consciousness, personality, and so on. And John Lilly, especially, and Peter McCain, and the other neuroanatomists who have looked at this, say that the brain is equally complex with ours, and larger, same cell density, same kind of connection density, and so on. Um, their behavior is quite intelligent. Uh, we could go into a lot of stories on that. But I guess more, most relevant, uh, there's some Russian work by Mar Markov and Ostrakaya, who looked at 300,000 vocalization of dolphins, concluded that they had a language with up to a trillion possible symbols, and figured out much of the syntax, although we have yet to figure out what they're saying. There's definitely a syntax, there's definitely a language there, and given that Voltaire, who had the highest vocabulary of any human, maybe he could recognize 100,000 words, and here the dolphins have a symbol system capable of on the order of a trillion symbols. Hmm. In other words, Obviously, it... they have a language on an order uh, of complexity higher than ours. Right, amazing. For example, they can make four sounds simultaneously, all different, like four click tracks, four whistle tracks, or any combination thereof. At the same time. At the same time. So you might think of one dolphin as being a quartet. thought it was interesting, and I've been in the water with them. First of all, what a large creature they are. They're very big and very strong, and certainly, if you've ever seen, and I know, and I'm mentioning this for the listeners, of course, uh, what they can do to a shark, uh, or what they can do to a school of fish or a small fish using stunning, the strange stunning ability that they use, that you've taught us about, Michael, with their sonar and things like this. So, Certainly the capacity is there, if they wanted to, to probably inflict great harm. Yet, uh, historically and uh, to this day, we see very little of that. And interestingly, in a situation where we, uh, our species, is, is, is creating 
great difficulty for their species right now. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. What do you make of it? Well, the part that they're um, subject to tremendous trauma because of us. Well, that and the fact that they are still uh, friendly toward us. Well, um, you know, it's said that they have a prime directive to be good to the humans. Um, and I wonder why maybe Michael really knows. But it, this is just projection, really. But in all the research over the last several years, in particular where dolphin encounters have become more and more popular, um, there's only very rarely talk of dolphins hurting people. Usually when that happens, it's because the people have done something very stupid and very mean, like sticking their fingers in the dolphin's blowhole mm. or hurting them in some way directly, right face to face, or failing to back off or get their messages. But by and large, they pretty well um, just want to play with us when they're around and when they're in that kind of mood. When Michael was just describing how their interactions with us go, I was thinking of the dolphins down at our local, one of our local beaches here. And how if they'll show up and they're ready to play for, with the people, a number of people will go up and be there with them. And then the dolphins will, like, swim all around the bay getting the humans to get their exercise. <laughs> <laughs> they love to play with them that way. And um, just take them out and have a good swim and um, get them moving all around the bay. And then they'll stay still for a little bit and then let them get close again. And then they'll scatter and... I definitely sense this as a playfulness with them hmm. and just in an attempt to engage the people, thinking a little bit more deeply about what they're doing and who they are encountering. Um, last week, our partner, Roberta Goodman, was out on an encounter, and she had described the most amazing game with the dolphin, female dolphin, having to do with um, them circling each other sort of like a dog chasing its tail, uh -huh. but they were having eye contact, and depending on how the dolphin turned, Roberta would turn a certain way, and they were just playing this game, and it was just winding up with them both kind of laughing. Roberta was laughing very much because she's witnessed so many examples of dolphin intelligence and dolphin playfulness. This was yet another one. Amazing. Hey, Michael, yeah. maybe you could talk to us a little bit about uh, some historical Reference. I know that uh, the dolphins played a very interesting role in in the Greek society, and I'm sure before that. Yeah, um, our studies have shown that the well, many cultures have had cooperative dealings with the dolphins, and several still do right now. Um, the Greeks are the most famous, well, most well known. Um, the dolphins would guide their ships and help them fish. For, for one thing, there's stories about uh, the dolphins taking the children to school. There's another one about uh, a harbor named Arion who's rescued by the dolphins when he's, well, basically Arion the harbor wins a contest and he takes ships back to Corinth. And the people on the ship decide that since he's rich and, and alone, they'll just throw him off the ship and take his stuff. So he asks that he be allowed to sing one last time. So he gets in his finest robes and plays the lyre and the dolphins come and then he jumps into the sea and the dolphins carry him back to Corinth and defeat the ship. So he goes to the king of Corinth and explains everything. So when the ship comes in, the king calls the crew of the ship in and asks what happened to his harbor. <laughs> and they say, oh, there's a big storm, and he fell over. And then they bring Arion out, of course, and the people are uh, executed. <laughs> anyway, there's things like that that go on for thousands of years with the Greeks. They're uh, 
major oracle was called Delphi, which means dolphin. Very interesting. To the Apollo in the form of a dolphin, among other things. So it was uh, great. they were greatly revered. They were called the highest form of physical creation. Things like that. Amazing. Um, the most remarkable story that I've run into, though, is the dolphins help these Greek fishermen fish. They come back after the fishing expedition. They're cleaning the fish, repairing the nets, and having a party. And a Greek fisherman is described as going down and feeding the dolphins bread soaked in wine. Hmm. And long story short, it turns out wine was a carrier for psychedelic drugs in ancient Greece. So that means they're, the Greek fishermen are sharing their highest sacrament with the dolphins. Fascinating. Part of the party. So all those things suggest that the Greeks especially had a very close relationship with the dolphins. And that's been, that's similar to what's being done with the uh, Amazonian natives and, and Mauritania and in Australia, several places still. All right. Well, let's see. Star. Yes? You've mentioned to me in the past something that you guys call the dolphinization of the planet. <laughs> Tell me what you mean by that, and then I want to talk a little bit about pod living. Okay. Um, well, after I met the dolphins for the first time, so I'm with a mother in 85, um, there were definitely big changes that took place within me. And over a period of time, I, I wanted a name for it, I guess. So I said, well, I had been subject to the dolphin effect. And I had been dolphinized. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love languages, you know, Michael. I do know that. I love words and coming up with new concepts and language to describe it. So um, the dolphin effect is similar to what people call the guru effect. Um, but it's also like pure physics or what I call the harmonics of consciousness. When a person is in the field of consciousness of a highly evolved being, or in the presence of a dolphin or a whale, they um, they they are entrained to those higher vibrations because it's a more coherent field. So um, I felt that through this entrainment process, that parts of me that had been like mm, cut off or felt less than lovingly accepted by myself were brought back to me, were helped me to become more whole again. And in doing this, then other attributes started to be expressed more fully. My, um, let's say my intuitive abilities, my psychic abilities um, became enhanced. My creativity became enhanced. My thinking certainly changed. Mm-hmm. I was somehow smarter <laughs> mm-hmm. than I had been, but smarter in ways that were beyond book learning or things that I had read. Some part of me was able to synthesize information in a different way, and um, I attributed this to my encounters with the dolphins. But in truth, I only had that one actual encounter at that time in Florida. It was something that was initiated by that encounter and then kept going. So once the program was activated, it just kept going. And then, um, so this was like the dolphin effect. It also helped me with various physical issues that I was dealing with at the time, I had a healing story with Joe the Dolphin, who helped heal my knees completely. For over 20 years now, my knees have been perfectly fine. Whereas before that, I had had to wrap them, and I was told to stop walking upstairs, and I was just going to have to get used to the fact that my knees were going. But Mm. it was just because I was actually afraid of change, (laughs) or reluctant to make change. I was like stuck. 
and my knees were reflecting that stuckness. So I'm with the dolphins, Joe Fixton, and then <laughs> I've been ready to move and make change at the drop of a hat since then because I realized, too, that humans tended, or we were raised, let's say, to to want things to be the same, to have predictability. But in my own researches, like in um, psychoneuroimmunology and the study of wellness and the connection between the mind and the brain and the body and everything, I realized that um, change is our natural state. Therefore, and change is all there is in life. It's change, change, change. Therefore, we must really be more adaptive to change than anything else. <laughs> and I'm finding since then that this is true. My fears about change have been released, and um, I welcome it. Like I kind of get bored if it gets too quiet. <laughs> uh, well, it's not quiet these days. It's hardly quiet at all. Things are popping all over the place. For yeah. us and for others, the world is in a period of tremendous transition, and the day that this interview is being given right now is the day of the summer solstice. You bet it is. So it's a time of tremendous power and light coming to the earth. It's a time for people to reach out and to allow um, the light to come to us as well, to be open and receptive to it. And, and these are things that were enhanced by my own encounter with the dolphins. But as I mentioned over the years, it just continues anyway, and every once in a while I have an opportunity to be with them close up. But um, by and large, I'm part of that pod consciousness, that pod energy, and the work of dolphinizing the planet has to do with raising our own consciousness to that of the cetaceans, to the dolphins, to having that higher level of awareness and functioning more from a place of wholeness, mm. which is all it is, really, is recapturing or reaccessing the wholeness that we are, mm. putting those places back in and like a big puzzle, putting in those places and remembering that, putting it back online with the rest of us. Well, and behold, we have a precocious human who is actually like a fully developed human being. Mm. What a novel concept. What a great idea, yes. <laughs> well, Michael, I'd like to ask you a question about the dolphins and music. I know that in the past we've spoken about that and that this is a, a potential way uh, or, or methodology toward communication as well. Would you like to talk about that just for a minute? Yes. Um, in our researchers, we've found that... Uh, well, this has been known for some time. Of course, uh, we're talking about Roger Payne. He was the first one to make a hit record of humpback whale song. Hmm. And roughly, they have the same informational content of something like a Beethoven symphony. Yes, and, and uh, Roger, by the way, and his wonderful partner, Lisa Harrow, are being interviewed by my partner, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, which will be accompanying this talk with you guys. So, uh, interestingly, that Roger comes into the conversation. Yes. Well, he, he was the one that definitely popularized humpback whale songs for the first time and showed that they were musical, that they have musical phrases that are conserved across years and others that change. Uh, they've done experiments like playing last year's songs to the current humpbacks, uh -huh. and they pick up particular riffs from the previous year and start incorporating them again, like, oh, yeah, that was an equal with that back then. Right. And then another case where some specific uh, humpbacks encountered some Indian Ocean humpbacks coming from another way, and they had different seeds, and they mixed together. So I think it's a form of cultural transmission, of course. But again, we still don't know quite what to say. Mm -hmm. It's definitely musical. It goes on for two hours at least, uh, and it's 
Free Willy, right? Sure. Um, they have musical phrases that are only used by particular pods and family groups and so on. And you can classify where a, where a particular orca is in its hierarchy just by what kind of musical phrases it uses. Back to the humpbacks a moment. They sing in different keys. Different groups sing in different keys. And a musician friend of ours was uh, playing, uh, imitating the humpbacks back and forth, realized this, and played in a particular key, and only that group of humpbacks answered. And he had like three or four groups, and so as he changed keys, different groups would answer, and the others would stay quiet. So they definitely understand music. Our partner in all this, uh, uh, Charles Lucy, has recreated a scale system that was originally invented by John Harrison. Uh, Harrison is famous for having solved the problem of measuring longitude by inventing what became the pocket watch. Hmm. Uh, the first chronometers that would work on ships. He also developed a music system that he called the natural scale. And it turns out that humpbacks, orcas, canaries, human choirs left to their own devices and uh, all, all sing in that particular scale. A little bit conceivable tempo. Hmm. And so we have, we uh, did that analysis on some orchid sounds, often sounds, come back, and it fits. So we now know the particular scale thing is. So given all this, we can make a musical communication interface. Um, one version of it would allow them to say, speak Hawaiian. Uh, mm-hmm. There's only 14 sounds in Hawaiian, so you assign one phoneme per frequency. Mm-hmm. And if they sing, if it's often, for example, saying the right sequence of note uh, a certain melody line, then they could speak Hawaiian. And it would come out as Hawaiian. Yeah, like, <laughs> it would become something like Aloha. Amazing. Through a speech synthesizer. Huh. So we'd have a, a quick musical communication interface. Something like that was done by Wayne Batoa about 50 years ago already, and he had him up to about 40 words in Hawaiian. So that's, that's a quick uh, summary of music. Alright, well, look, we are... Uh, Getting low on time here, so I've got one more thing that I'd like to bring to both of you. I'd like to ask the question about conservation and about, you know, the situation in the oceans, the, the, the situation that our uh, our brothers and sisters in the ocean are faced with, and what people might do to learn about it and to help if there's something to be helped. Well, I could address at least part of that, because... We're involved through a friend of ours here with the Watershed Commission. And being on an island surrounded by water, we have a lot of things to be aware of and attentive to. For example, runoff, especially with a lot of rain and lots of flooding. We have to remember that everything that's here gets washed ultimately into the waters or brought back up into the water somehow. So the main thing is, as much as possible, I would say, be thoughtful about what we're using Personal care products, as much as possible, should be organic. Our soaps and things like that should be um, organic and, you know, be conservative in our use of things. Be conscientious about where we're putting things, where we're dumping stuff. If there are recycling centers for oils and paints and all those things that need to be handled better, we should make use of this. And um, that's one kind of pollution that we have out there. One of the other large pollutions, though, is sound, and um, we need to address the rights of others, like the cetacean, other marine life, to have a world that they can inhabit 
and actually continue to live in and thrive. What we are doing with too much sound throughout the world is we are destroying um, many kinds of species and their ability to perpetuate how we could bring pressure to the uh, U.S. government to restrict the use of low-frequency active sonar would be by getting in touch with National Marine Fisheries Service or people's local um, representatives and senators, people like this, people of influence. Um, we could have things like what our island has done, the Big, um, big Island, through proclamation and resolution, is declaring, you know, like a safe zone around the island. Um, of area dedicated to the preservation of marine life, which is so critical. And um, I guess what else, Michael? Oh, um, I think there could be a lot of public pressure brought to bear on the navies and uh, the commercial fisheries and uh, in, uh, Japan, Iceland, Norway, for example. Um, one, uh, well, one example, quick example, was a Japanese company that also had a lot of tuna contracts in New Zealand. And uh, they also were whalers. And people got on that and said, well, why are you whaling? You know, and we'll stop buying your tuna. Mm-hmm. And it turned out the tuna market was much larger than the whaling market. So they, for the first time in history, sold off their whaling interest. Uh, so we've had at least one Japanese company switch its policy based on public pressure. But that's an important thing to realize. Uh, the Navy um, has backed off to the point where it got a uh, Judge Laporte put a restraining order on the Navy to limit the testing of the uh, low-frequency sonar. There's other things going on, like uh, uh, what they call oil exploration, which is very loud mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the uh, layers the oil. Those are extremely loud, at least as loud as the military sonar. So they can see things in um, shorter, reasonably short range, like on the order of five miles. Lethal, anything up above about 150 feet is just flat lethal. Uh, just to give a quick transition, uh, about 130 feet is painful, and it goes up uh, 3 dB per power of mm-hmm. So uh, 150 is very loud. 155 And we've shown that in. Canary Islands. Yeah. And our own islands and many have been associated with naval exercise. So whatever pressure anybody can bring to bear on the food on the Navy in their own country and ours would be helpful. Um, also better um preparedness for ship strikes to avoid um ship strikes because the great right whale, which is nearly extinct now, the pretty um Atlantic Great Right Whale has um, suffered many ship strikes. We had a number of incidents over the last season here with the humpbacks in Hawaii. Now the super ferry is fixing to come in, and there's yet to be adequate research shown or done to um, prevent any harm coming to the whales during whale season. So people can bring pressure to bear wherever they are asking and requesting very strongly that their local governments, their state governments, their national governments do whatever they can to assure their well-being. And we have technology that can help us with all of this stuff. We just have to take it and apply it in the right directions. We have to set our intention that 
preserving life as we know it or better on this planet, especially includes the cetacea, keeping them around. Because what kind of life are we going to have if we destroy what's in the ocean? Mm. It's going to be gone. <laughs> this is for everybody. <laughs> this is for everybody. All right, you guys. Well, uh, you're doing fantastic work. And I tell you one thing, if, uh, if we could, if we could have the dolphins uh, actually communicating, like I know we're very close uh, to getting, and they can tell uh, the folks themselves, uh, you know, what it feels like to be in the range of low-frequency active sonar, I think we would make a tremendous stride towards straightening things out. So I commend you on your work, and I and and I really uh, encourage people to uh, uh, to get involved and support your work as well. And and they can do that at the website. What is it? One more time, Star. Um, PlanetPuna.com. And also, we have a special email address for the Cetacean Commonwealth. That's C-E-T-A-C-E-A-N, Commonwealth, C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-L-T-H, E-A-L-T-H, rather, um, at yahoo.com. And that's specifically addressing um, giving them a voice. And people who want to participate in helping to support them in that way um, could email us there, could Keep in touch with what's happening with the Commonwealth. As I mentioned, we'd like to have some kind of NGO status or official status next year, perhaps some kind of communications breakthrough that will um, give them a place at their own table where their fate is being discussed and decided. Mm. And um, to close off, I would like to give a great thanks and appreciation to Dr. Lynn Horowitz. Because, as you know, Michael, we always have a fun adventure <laughs> on where are we going to do our interviews with you. So we're at a place, um, formerly the Steam Van Din in Pune, Hawaii, at Len Horowitz's home and estate now called the Kingdom of Heaven. We're looking at the steam coming out of the steam vents in the backyard here. And as we draw this interview to a close, the rain starts to come. All right, a big thank you to Dr. Len Horowitz, who's doing great work as well. Okay. It's great work, yes, because he included Michael's chapter on dolphins healing and autism in his last book, DNA Pirates of the Sacred Spiral, and his latest book is called Walking on Water. All right. It's pretty amazing about the pure water. They call it the breath of the earth that's coming out here directly from Madame Pele. It's a pretty magical place, pretty magical people, and pretty magical work that's happening. All right. Well, it's uh, yours. Thank you. I know, and thank you guys for, for taking the time to do this. And Michael Starr, of course, reminds me of autism and healing capabilities. We didn't even get a chance to talk about that stuff, but we will make an effort to bring you back onto this program and get into some more of this fascinating stuff with the, with the dolphins and the whales because it really is remarkable work. And the more people learn about it, I think that it's just intuition that they feel good about it and want to, uh, want to certainly keep these, uh, these friends of ours around. Thank sure. you so much and for having us. Yes, and um, the work, you know, if people have contributions someplace they want to put some funds to help with this, we're certainly open to that, and we're set up on our website for people to um, help the cause. It's a good one. All right, you guys. Thanks again one more time, and uh, we'll say aloha. Aloha. All righty, everybody. You've been listening to Mike Hagan. I've been bringing you a conversation from Gaia Logs, sponsored by the Marion Institute and the website futureprimitive.org. My guests have been Star Newland and Dr. Michael Heisen from the Sirius Institute in Puna, Hawaii. You can find information about Dr. Heisen and Star at www.planetpuna.com, and we'll have them linked up at futureprimitive.org as soon as we 
air this wonderful interview. One more time, thanks to Dr. Heisen. And Star, we'll talk to you again. Mahalo, Michael. Mahalo. Aloha. All right, there you have it. The wonderful Lisa Harrow and Dr. Roger Payne, brought to you by my partner and the co-host of this program, Joanna Harcourt-Smith. Then we heard Dr. Michael Heisen and Star Newland from the Sirius Institute in Puna, Hawaii. We thank them all for their time and their information, and we thank you all for listening. Dialogues is a production of futureprimitive.org in association with metahistory.org, sponsored by the Marion Institute. Information about the Marion Institute can be found on the web at marioninstitute.org.